Hey everyone, this is Tom Salami. Welcome back to the Device Talks weekly podcast. We have a lot of med tech talk for you this week. In our main interview, we're going to hear from Joe Army, the CEO of Vapotherm, and Alton Shader, the CEO of Viant Medical. This is a bit of a preview for a conversation we'll be having on May 10th at Device Talks Boston. Viant's putting on a presentation as well as sponsoring this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. But on May 10th, they'll be hosting Joe Army and other executives from Viant and Vapotherm to talk about how to rapidly scale and unlock growth with strategic manufacturing partnerships. It's a great story of how Viant stepped in and helped Vapotherm solve a problem that it really couldn't solve on its own. So we'll hear more details a little later in the podcast, but do go to devicetalks.com to find out more information about the discussion and, of course, to register to attend Device Talks Boston. And, of course, when you register, use the code DTW25. Also on the podcast today, I'm excited to have as our co-host, Peter Stebbins. Peter is a former executive of J&J. He and I met actually just a few years ago uh, through Clubhouse and whatnot uh, during uh, during the pandemic. But he's been a, a really great uh, help with the podcast and with Device Talks Boston. In fact, he was able to uh, help recruit our kickoff keynote speaker or keynote interview guest. Peter actually will be interviewing Frank Doyle, who is the Dean of Harvard's John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. This is uh, really Harvard's first big engineering building or program. But what Frank is going to talk about isn't about the school, but about his work in innovation. He has been a med tech uh, pioneer for a long time. He's worked on the artificial pancreas. He's worked on other devices within MedTech. So Peter, who's bringing a great experience, not only as a MedTech executive, but also as someone who's working with startups now. He's currently the executive chairman of Nurami Medical and is doing some other uh, work with innovators in the Boston area. He'll talk with Frank about not only where MedTech innovation has been, but where it's going. Frank is going to uh, hit upon notes that will be of interest to anyone who's uh, following surgical robotics anyone who's interested in AI's role in medtech. So uh, it's going to be a far-ranging and far-reaching conversation. I'm looking forward to hearing it, and uh, I'm I'm sure you will enjoy it. So listen to uh, Peter talk a bit about uh, the talk today, about his plans today for the interview. He'll also walk through Newmarker's Newsmakers with us, and he brings some great insights there. But uh, please do uh, come see us all at Device Talks Boston. Once again, go to devicetalks.com. You can register for Device Talks Boston, which is happening on May 10th at 11. Use the code DTW25 to save 25%. You can also find this podcast on uh, devicetalks.com. And you can find information about our upcoming Device Talks Tuesday, which is hosted by Silicon Labs. That presentation is actually starting at 11 a.m. It's an earlier one this week around 11 a.m. Eastern on Device Talks Tuesday. So uh, please do register for that as well. Silicon Labs will be talking about uh, IoT, the Internet of Things, and how it relates to devices. So uh, great conversations all about. Now, let's begin this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Do 
doing well. Doing well. Woke up to a nice uh, snowy morning here in Minneapolis. You have snow. Yes. In yes. Minneapolis. I know. Shocking, right? Snow in April. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, our, our, our co-host, uh, Peter Stebbins, and I were just commenting. We're both in Boston. What a delightful sunny day we have here today. Uh, so I'm don't sorry. rub it in. It is a, is a, a good Friday indeed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Nice. I took the dog for a long walk this morning. She, I was uh, away at MDNM West all week. So uh, no one else takes, no one else walks the dog like I walk the dog. So she needed a, a good vigorous run in the woods. So uh, it was a lovely day for that. Glad your dog is happy. That's awesome. My, my dog is happy. I'm still dragging. <laughs> <laughs> I flew in late, early this morning and uh, I like that car that you left the headlights on all night. You know, it's turning over, but it's not quite catching yet. I'm, 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 I keep. I have my caffeine jumper cables here. Yeah. Hopefully it'll, it'll kick in. Get the jump box going. Yeah. I'm drinking coffee too, Tom. So excellent. Well, we're awesome. glad to have you here, Peter, to, to be part of our new Marcus Newsmakers, but also we're going to uh, talk a little bit later about, uh, about your role at Device Talks Boston. And uh, um, we'll, uh, we'll, you're going to be leading our keynote interview with, uh, with Peter Doyle. We'll get more details in a moment. So, Peter, tell us, uh, tell us how you got into the uh, medtech industry. Yeah, so actually, back in business school, um, I had served in the army and grew up on a farm. I was in Germany, so I didn't know anything about corporations. So accounting and marketing and you know consulting wasn't in my my background. So for a summer internship, I actually uh, uh, got a reference from my brother who worked at the J and J Band Aid plant in New Jersey oh, um, nice. about some people at Ethicon in the med device side who wanted to to bring in some talent. So. I actually started the summer intern in operations uh, at, at the Ethicon business, um, which is a really important junction in, in time for market device at that time, because that's when we really got a laparoscopy in 89 was the first time that yeah. happened. So in 90, when I was there and in 91, when I'm back full time, um, it was right in the middle of the, the big race against uh, U.S. Surgical and Leon Hirsch. So we were building a guy in the, you know, building the, the office next to me was building this $50 million facility out in Cincinnati to train thousands of surgeons and, and, uh, you know, have, a uh, two, uh, uh, loading docks for the, for the, for the trucks of pigs coming in and about every day. Wow. Um, and then on the Ethicon side and suture side where I was, uh, Leon had very publicly written a New York Times or Wall Street Journal article about how they were going to come after the weakness in the Ethicon portfolio in terms of the packaging. So the program I got involved with, you know, part of that was to update all the packaging and then make things better. And ultimately that uh, worked out quite well because we ended up maintaining all that share. So I uh, spent a couple of years in operations at the Ethicon business, moved into uh, sales in New York, and that allowed me to get into every different type of surgery from plastic to ophthalmic to orthopedic. Um, and then, you know, off the races from there doing, you know, marketing stuff in Europe, a lot of uh, business development. Um, so across all the different areas, a bit of surgery, a bit of orthopedics, neuro, um, and then some corporate stuff, uh, both uh you know, divesting businesses in the BD side, as well as doing some really early stage investment mm -hmm. and partnering at our innovation center here in Kendall Square. That's great. So, how did you? So that's what I brought me how did you? Example. How did you end up here in Boston? And uh, and what are you? Are you retired now completely, or are you still dabbling? Yeah, I'm still dabbling. Thanks, thanks for asking. So, so um, when I came back from Scotland, we had a small business called our, our MyTech Surgical uh, Sports Medicine business. Uh, actually, MyTech Surgical at the time because it was still actually many opens. So I came up here to uh, do BD and then VP of Marketing for our, our MyTech Sports Medicine business out in Raynham. As you may know, there's a big facility there. Actually, a lot of manufacturing going on there. People don't know. Um, and so I came up here in 2003, raised the kids out in the, out in the country. Awesome. Um, and then when they moved away, 
uh, ended up getting a job at the Innovation Center in Kendall Square. And that's when we uh, we sold the house and, and moved to, to downtown. So that's why I live in, uh, in the South End. Very cool. Very cool. I was just thinking your story of how you got into MedTech, it's just it's a good example. Like internships can like really matter. Like, you know, you just it gave you a chance to dip yeah. your, your feet into this industry. And you're like, I, this is exciting. I like it. And you got into it. In, internships and also leaders. There's there's a leader. My my boss that summer was a guy named Bob Salerno, who was just a and we didn't use the phrase at the time, but a servant leader who just became a you know a rock star. Became you know president of Ethicon Surgery. Actually, he's running all the supply chain um, for for J and J for for a while. Before he he, uh, he passed away, but he he kind of like sucked me in. Oh my God, this is the type of you know what, who else do I want to go work for. So. Um, and the internship and, and the right leader um, makes a big impact. And, and what are you doing up here in, in, in Boston now? Yeah, so no, actually, in my last, uh, you know, my roles in business development and being here in Boston, I started to do a lot more stuff with things like MassMedic and, um, you know, uh, my my uh, uh, business school alumni association. As you can imagine, a big company like Medtronic or J&J, you can be very internally focused and, and have a lot of connections. But I tried to, like, shift to be externally focused. Um, and so that's led me to uh, some, some, some good things I've been doing since I left J&J last summer. And so we asked me about retired. I'm, I'm, I'm still uh, staying pretty busy. I'm advising um, a couple of companies, uh, Acuity MD, um, On Point Surgical, which is an uh, uh, augmented reality company, uh, Valueware, which is actually uh, prior authorizations. And then I'm also uh, chairman of the board, actually executive chairman of a company called Nerami, which is a, uh, a biomaterials company. Um, with our first products be going into um, into neurosurgery, kind of a, a dural uh, dural graft replacement, um, but very very different because it's actually a combination of these nanofibers, a layer of nanofibers, a layer of sealant, and then another layer of nanofibers, um, and it handles really well and strong, but also kind of self seals. So um, uh, a lot lot uh, lot in the pipeline as well. So that that's um, been fun for me to. To, uh, to help help that team. It's a pretty amazing company, Israel. It really sounds like you're doing quote unquote retirement the way like I, I kind of envision doing it someday. Like just this idea that, you know, someday I'll, I'll get to the point where it could be just like, you know what, I just, I just do what I do what I want to do. You know what, whatever, whatever's really fun. Yeah, and that's, no that's awesome. You stay somewhere for 30 years and you get a, you know, old, old school pensions and, you know, retiring medical and all that stuff. You can, uh, you can, you know, we're not so worried about some of the stuff. So I might have a podcast when I retire. It's not really that hard. And I like doing it. So I think I'll just keep doing this. Are we going to be doing this, Tom, when we're 80? Uh, Why not? we be like, hey, Tom. Like, I, I got to put two kids through college. So the, the odds of that are pretty yeah. good, Chris. Yep. I'll be like, Tom, my back. Like, Chris, my knee. <laughs> Lordy, Lord. So. Or, or by then I'll be like, Chris, my, I have a new heart. I have a new, right. like a mechanical we will heart. Have like, wow, per, first person med tech stories. It'll be more, more med tech than man. <laughs> Yeah. Fantastic. Well, let's uh, let's roll into uh, into this week's news markers, newsmakers, Chris. Uh, as always, Peter, you're welcome to welcome to off your insights whenever uh, whenever you've got them. So, uh, yeah, Peter, just jump on in. So, all right. So, number five on the list. Uh, this uh, this ran in full on a medical design outsourcing. I too was uh, like hitting the conferences this week, Tom. I know I I know you had to fly across the country to uh, Anaheim to MBA West. Yeah. I all, all I had to do is just drive uh, drive across the uh, the downtown over the University of Minnesota's campus here to, you know, uh, check out the Design of Medical Devices, a conference, which is a nice, really nice conference that the U does uh, every year about uh, medtech innovation. Caught, um, you know, I, I've traded messages with them. You know, you've, you've interacted with them a lot, but uh, it was actually the first time that I met Medtronic CEO Jeff Martha in person, oh, which is very cool. Great. 
Really cool. I was glad I it was. It was really nice to do that. Um, you know, Jeff. Uh, you know, you know, repeated that he uh, listens to our podcast. Uh, you know, uh, all all the time. And I, I hi Jeff. Yes, I make sure to say <laughs> that. You know, really, like you know, it's it's mostly you, man. It's mostly you, Tom. Like this is this is uh, you make the magic happen. You know, I'm, I'm just glad he, he let me on here to talk about nonsense, the news. Nonsense, but, um, but what a and I have to say, I, I was very struck by the fact that he would come on like pretty much every quarter. He would make sure he talks to you after his earnings call. I think that really shows the focus on on on, on uh, you know, MedTech and and getting the message out that that, that Jeff brought to Medtronic. So that's uh, good on him. Well, yeah, and not to yeah. not to. to go too far down this road but but I'm, I'm pretty sure medtronic talks the podcast doesn't happen without uh without jeff's interest in podcasts so uh grateful for that opportunity so and, you know he, he was mentioning he felt that it was a nice you know, we were providing uh you know um uh, you know a really good uh good information for a nice little this nice little audience of medtech insiders but you know it, it kind of dawned on me you know it, it the audience here isn't isn't that small anymore either i mean how many how many views are we usually averaging on this podcast? Well, zero time? views, Chris, because it's a podcast. But but lots of people. <laughs> I mean, not views. I mean, listen. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, but I had to. It was there, and I was like, you "Should I?" I'm like, me. "No." Well, well, well. <laughs> <laughs> How many listen? <laughs> most of our. That's right. It's audio. Most of our episodes get uh, over two thousand. So uh, depends, give or take. Yeah, so ultimately. But anyway, you know, I you know to, to go on like I wrote an article off his uh, his keynote, uh, which is gotten like. A, a really good amount of views and you know it was just uh, you know it was interesting he was just kind of like uh, doubling down on a lot of the talk we've heard from you know Medtronic you know over the years of you know how they're putting a big emphasis on uh, on digital and I, I have to say like uh, you know even before Jeff Jeff Martha uh, when uh, Omar Ishrak was running the company it was it was it was actually really cool that the company um, you know, I think it was really one of the first to really like jump in there and say like no we're not just a device company we're making devices anymore we're actually like you know moving into like you know the software and services and uh you know and uh and, and martha really thinks all all the insights you could gain off of uh you know data and ai off of that you know that you know comes off of you know people's devices could really help you know medtronic you know greatly expand the number of people that they're uh, they're serving i mean he's very ambitious he wants to go from 72 million patients a year to you know a billion patients mm-hmm. a year so he's you know he's uh, looking at like uh you know uh mcdonald's level of uh customer you know service and probably a lot more healthier for people than mcdonald's so yeah it's uh i, I love that metric he, met, metric he had talked about that uh, on the podcast earlier of, uh there was a number that they had started collecting before he became ceo and i and he think he sort of renewed it but going to your point uh about the uh the the inclusion of technology peter i mean we're hearing similar similar themes from from zimmer from depew synthes we'll have them at uh, device talks boston talking about that we'll have striker talking about their acquisitions of osera and um gauss their their ai Mm -hmm. company how they're all incorporating that into their their medical technology or their med tech devices uh what does this look like uh, internally? Is this really a transition of a, of a, of a company of an industry speaking broadly about every company? Is it, does it really feel like it's a different kind of company than it might've been 10 years ago? To me, there's going to be the, the difference of it's a chronic care. I think, you know, one of the reasons Medtronic and, and others you know, got into remote patient monitoring is the fact that they have the devices in there and you're, you're tracking, you know, those patients on an ongoing basis. And it kind of, there, there's a reason for, for those patients to get that much. So that was, I think a really good fit for for some of the the early you know, technology being associated with with, with medical devices, um, and then over time, it, it's some are going to work out and some aren't. I, I really think you know, just reading the quote, it's a little bit about 
you know, how much information do physicians want to get and can they handle, right? So the right type of AI is going to, you know, curate in such a way that it's super useful. And for the right applications, it's just going to become like, well, my goodness, why wouldn't we ever do this? And I think that's what each, you know, different part of the industry is looking at it, whether you're in, in interventional or surgical or orthopedics or, 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 or neural, you know, they're all going to be different mm-hmm. in terms of where the digital piece comes in. And yeah. then even within that, in which cases does it create the value for the physician and, and you know, even, you know, whatever hospital somebody needs to, you know, do remote monitoring just because you can do remote monitoring doesn't mean that it's going to be useful to the patient and the hospital and, and then the system. So I think the, the the key is to figure out which ones are the most effective and um, and then sell the hell out of them because I think they're, it's really going to be a good operation or a good application. I think it says something about the role that AI has to play in it because I mean, no doctor has time to sift through mm-hmm. a bunch of data, but if you're, you know, if an AI could just like tap the doctor on the shoulder kind of digitally and say, yeah. hey, I think this this patient over here, their AFib might be heating up yeah, or, yeah. You know, or with these smart knee implants that Zimber Biomed has now, mm-hmm. like if the, the AI could just say, hey, I think I think they might yeah. have a knee infection, you should check them out. But, you know? but that leads to the question, of, so, so if you don't do anything about that and they get a knee infection, do you get sued? Because the AI told the doc, does the doc get sued? Does mm-hmm. the company get sued? So you've got this whole so ocean of like, you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> There is a little bit of like, hey, I'm, I've done this surgery. I'm, I'm done. I love you, but I'm done, at least for, you know, after 90 days. And then you just had this whole trailing bit of, of responsibility. Well, but you for mean the-, the doctor doesn't want to do another appointment and charge some more money to the insurer? I mean, uh, like, I mean, I, I, think, I surgeons, think there's something there, you know? Like- I, don't, I don't know. Surgeons, surgeons want to cut. I mean, surgeons want to cut. They, they see a lot of patients. They only get paid for the ones they get cut. So it's, uh, yeah. there, there's, uh, anyway. So I just think that, that there is an issue in terms of the AI where it, it really can be very useful, but I, I don't think we should understate the fact that what are you going to do with the information if it's there? And then if you don't read it, what do you do? But do you do you feel yeah. the companies themselves, med tech companies again, in ten or themselves in ten years are going to be different? Are they going to need more foosball tables to uh, to account to accommodate all these tech workers who are going to come and and work on uh, work in these med tech companies? Are they going to be? As Martha said they want to put the tech yeah, in yeah, tech. Exactly. even have a whole yeah. web page for it now. Yeah. <laughs> what do you see happening, Peter? Is, is this going to be? Are these companies going to look different? Yes, they'll be familiar, but they'll be quite different yeah. because there will be. That, that notion of, you know, finding where the right digital piece is. And, and uh, again, I think there will always be differentiation on whatever gets implanted or how the surgeon actually works at that moment of, of doing anastomosis or, or, or whatever, but being able to, to stay on top of it is, is going to require digital. And um, again, there would be digital applied to the immediately preoperative and then perioperative and then short-term post-operative. And I think those will be very big focuses because I think those are naturally tied into that same DRG payment. So that everything aligns to make sure that gets done right. And then the stuff that goes with longer term will, uh, you know, will we'll play out. And, and that may actually get, it will be a challenge between other companies that come from scratch, which are not involved in, in, in the surgery, but can kind of play a, a stronger role afterwards. Cool. So. All right. Well, Chris, what's, uh, what's number four in the new markers use makers? Well, number four on the list, we've got uh, Massimo. Uh, they completed their uh, acquisition of uh, Sound United. And th- this has just been a really fascinating deal. I mean, they're, they're spending over a billion dollars to, you know, acquire this uh, maker of like high-end, you know, speakers. I mean, think of like, you know, like, 
you know, kind of like, uh, you know, sound systems that people put in their houses to like listen to music really cool or, you know, listen to, listen to it in their uh, cars or do, uh, you know, home, home theaters. And uh, now they're, uh, you know, they've got this, uh, you know, they're, they're, they've got this, you know, med tech company uh, acquiring them. And, uh, you know, the analysts, it looked like it was kind of a head scratcher, uh, you know, for investors, for, for bet. And uh, the analysts are still saying they want more information from the company about what they want to do. I mean, what do you think about that, Peter? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, so it's interesting. I mean, <laughs> I, I divested three companies from J&J, and in each case, one of the most interesting pieces was to try to understand not the incumbents or the easy adjacents, but there are often companies out there who really feel like, okay, this is a strategic add-on over in this space. If we could just do this, it would kind of just refresh our, our, our brand with investors and, and kind of there's a bit of logic, and if we do well there, then we have this new growth thing, and it, it you know it could be reinforcing, or it could be an art, you know kind of um, you know arbitrage against kind of their their core business or whatever. So, and in every case, in each of those three cases, there were companies that kind of surprised us in terms of how aggressive they looked at these businesses, even though you wouldn't think about them as being either in the space or even an, an adjacent. But they go, hey, this is actually you know it's a it's a solid you know the segment is growing with a good team, we can run it, blah, blah, blah. So I, I think some, and I'm not surprised that people do this and sometimes it works out well and sometimes it doesn't. And it sounds like the, the, the job for them is to make sure the analysts understand that as a, at a minimum, as a standalone, that, that company will do well. And then also they get the benefit of some, of some synergy and also over time, whatever type of, of, um, uh, you know, splitting of risk by being in a different space brings to, 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 to their core. So Massimo is really excited about, you know, they're, they're just have this really big focus on digital health and, you know, bringing, uh, you know, bringing, you know, patient monitoring into the, into the yeah. home. And, you know, and they're kind of like, hey, this company knows how to hook up yeah. things yeah, no, in I, your home. Yeah, you know, to, to, so. to Tom's question before about how water companies going to look like in the future. And we saw that a little bit with indirectly with Stryker, you know, with, with their, you know, uh, acquiring a company. It's like, okay, in, in the future, they're like, rather than trying to grow it indoors, let's just, you know, buy a company that has a lot of that talent. And, um, and so people who speak that native and we'll teach them how to speak our native language and, and make it work. So, you know, it sounds like a talent play as well as a, a potential strategy on the, um, on, on the market side. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Interesting. Play. That's practical, so, but it could work out well. And it, yeah. it is very hey, common. Maybe you could uh, analyze. I mean, I, I know, uh, I know the head of Mathematic who found a device talks here, Brian Johnson. I mean, he was mentioned on LinkedIn. He was like, Hey, you know, you could, you know, you could, uh, you could, you know, monitor people's health through headphones potentially, you know? So, I mean, there's all, all kinds of interesting, interesting things. So it'll be neat to, but I, I wonder what the next like really uh, interesting deal will be that will, will come along or like, why did they do that? That's like fascinating. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like some Kohler is going to buy one of these big med tech companies or whatever. One of them to kind of bring the, uh, bring home healthcare to the, to the home, you know? Uh, I was going to mention that as well. I'm thinking of, well, if, if Kohler can, can look at toilet as a medical device, I guess we could consider headphones to be a medical device. So just as much as a, a crossover. All right, Chris Newmarker, let's roll on, roll on to right. number three. I think we have a theme going on there. Oh, seems to be goodness. a lot of technology sort of, sort of uh, this news making this week. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, number, uh, number three on the list, we've got a Boston Scientific winning uh, FDA approval for uh, image guided uh, software for their, uh, you know, deep brain, you know, stimulation therapy. So, uh, you know, it's uh, the, the latest 
image guide programming they have like works in collaboration with uh with brain lab you know and the the here, idea here is allowing uh enabling clinicians to you know visual visualize the lead placement and you know stimulation monitoring of the of you know of the you know, the you know parkinson patient's uh, brain anatomy in real time so um you know just it looks like this could just up the yeah. game even more with uh with yeah. dbs therapy which is i'm, really I'm glad to see space. that we had you know uh the neuromod piece there at the uh, at Cotman and, and big big fan of the space i mean dbs I mean, i'm glad to see more technology going to dbs because it's it's frustratingly slow in terms of how much that's been adopted and taken off and, and i think part of it is just the the invasiveness in, in, in the placement and, and sounds like this is going to, you know, give people confidence to, to, to do it more quickly and more, um, you know, more, more precisely, which will give you, you know, better results and, and things like that. So it's another step along the way. I know Mike Mahoney's a big fan of, uh, of the space and I'm really glad to see DBS making some progress. I think that in the, the brain is really the next, you know, the whole electrical system in our bodies is still a, uh, a mystery to us. Um, and I really think the next 20 years, you know, it's, it's really going to explode in terms of our understanding of, of how um, all the nerves work from, from the brain on down to your toes and, um, and be able to really impact that through, through technology. Right now, we kind of know what could happen, but it's, it's a little bit rough, yeah. a little bit black box. And, and uh, even spinal cord stimulation with Nevro, we got closer, but that was kind of a, to be honest, a, a black box you know, inventor discovery that the fact that high frequency worked. It wasn't like we actually knew kind of like in first principles why it should work it was like oh my goodness yep. that works and now the whole world is better off because it works but anyway i just think over time we'll be able to be more more proactive and, and prospective on on um, on technologies as we as we learn the brain so i'm excited to see that dbs stuff going we're gonna yeah. take a break from uh, from new markets newsmakers we'll hit uh number two and number one uh, a little later in the podcast but uh, peter Again, I, I mentioned up top you're, uh, you're integral in helping us uh, secure one of our great keynotes for Device Talks Boston. Be speaking with uh, with Frank Doyle the uh, third now of uh, of Harvard, but uh, he's been uh, been a medtech pioneer for uh, for a long time, and you've you've really educated me on, on his role in uh, in the artificial pancreas and 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 his in his work with Insulet. Tell us a bit about uh, about Frank Doyle and uh, what do you expect to be uh, talking with him about uh, at Device Talks Boston. This will be our, our kickoff keynote, so it'll be happening the first morning, May tenth, at the uh, at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. Yeah, no, I, I think it's going to be really exciting because Frank happened to have been involved you know, twenty years ago, done some seminal work in the area of of algorithms and stuff for for uh, um, insulin control. So was involved in, in in multiple companies, include Animus, and I think even one of the other speakers, Insulet, not just Animus, but also Insulet. Um, they still continue to use his the work of of him yeah. in his lab. So he's been professor and, and dean of, of of things for a while, but not in the ivory tower, right? So he's actually been working on on helping companies um, bring things to market in the med tech space, and and has really been a kind of a thought leader in that space. But what makes it interesting about you know being a speaker at this conference is he's also now the the dean of the the Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Harvard. And you may recall, you know, Harvard didn't used to have an engineering school. They had a division in like 2007. They started to go into it. Trying to tell the story about trying to buy MIT back in the 1800s and all that. But basically, they were really didn't have like real engineering, and and they had some science and obviously computer science and stuff. But now they're going all in. And as you can imagine. When you have that type of you know money coming in, they're catching up quick. So um, that school of engineering and applied sciences is, is not just the engineering, uh, you know, you know, mechanical and biomedical, but also he has all of the 
applied sciences. So computer science, this whole area of AI and data sciences, those are like, you can graduate with degrees in data science and, 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 and those things there at Harvard um, in, his, in awesome. his school. So it's really, it's all that stuff is impacting, you know, healthcare, uh, both medical device and more broadly is right in his bailiwick. And it's really everything to do with MIT kind of like he does right there in the, at that school. And so if you guys, you know, I know Christian not around, but people from the Boston area, you drive along the Pike, you can see this beautiful new building, 500 square thousand, 500,000 square foot building where they kind of had to move away from the old campus where it's kind of like Hogwarts type of uh, uh, building. It's a beautiful building, right? But it was, you know, you could just see now it's this eight story, beautiful building with a big maker space and, and getting good funding from, from, from strong people. So that is a really, and, and also I should say one last thing about this conference, the conference is, you know, MedTech, which is great, but also there's going to be the MedTech innovator, you know, panels there. So there's a lot of people coming out of, out of the, out of his school um, that are doing startups and it's right across from the Pagliuca, uh, Harvard uh, uh, life lab. So they're doing a startup. There's also, and if I understand right, you know, concurrent with us and people who come to it, there's a healthcare robotics program uh, conference yep. going on at, at, the, at this yep. at Boston uh, Convention Center the same day. So you basically have two different, you know, uh, different conferences, both of which should love to, to hear a, a rock star like, like, like Frank talk about um, robotics, AI, uh, you know, controlling devices, you know, regulatory paths, all that stuff. So, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great. Great pairing with the Robotics Expo and the Healthcare Robotics Engineering Forum. So yep. we'll actually have three events going on at the yeah, same time. Yeah, I was just saying the other day on LinkedIn, I'm really looking forward to that talk. It's going to be uh, it's going to be neat to hear what he has to say. And we were talking about neuroscience before. Uh, this uh, this the Science and Engineering Center houses the uh, the 500 million dollar Chan Zuckerberg Initiative uh, for neuroscience AI. Correct? Yeah, yeah. So they're yep. they're doing yep. that and again. Also, at that school, they also people from there they can work with the uh, the MIT program for health sciences is I mean a lot of people kind of come out of that program um, as well as they have a, a program for you know system synthetic and qualitative biology it's kind of the really cutting edge stuff they actually do the medical school so um, you know what, what they what they're doing there is is, uh, is is pretty pretty cutting edge for for healthcare so it's really nice to be able to um, introduce him to the, uh, to be honest, introduce him to the, uh, to the community, because as I said, it's been, I won't, I won't call it stealth, but basically they didn't used to have an engineering school. There's history. I mean, obviously you got Mark Zuckerberg and then, you know, Bill Gates and people have come out of these out of there pretty, pretty sharp with one and done folks, at least. But uh, now they have this, this, this big resource and it's kind of great to, uh, to have the community meet him and uh, well, not so much him, but just the, the, uh, the students, um, and the faculty and researchers that are, uh, um, you know, available in that, uh, in that community. And we can stop talking about Stanford, Stanford, Stanford all the time. Yeah. Enough. Yeah. I'm a Boston guy. Let's start talking about some, some local schools here. Yeah. MIT we've got, but now we have Harvard too. Uh, so just wrapping that up. So who, uh, who should really be excited to, to hear this discussion? Like when you're, when you're developing your questions and you're having a conversation, who do you have in mind, Peter, as to like the, the, the recipient of, of whatever sure, messages. Sure. Frank's so, be so first of all, I do think the people at the health robotics should, 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 should come. Cause again, I think they're pretty, pretty healthy you know, robotics, uh, you know, program there. Um, but again, anybody who's been involved in working with any kind of technology coming out of a university um, or even after that, because again, he's, he's got that, 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 that span of, of experience from, from continuing to work with industry, even, you know, 
even you know for, for 20 years, even after the, the initial stuff came out. So people who are doing anything health tech related to that, I should say, anybody who's you know looking to hire people, because I think he'll have some opinions on on what students and uh, postdocs and, and 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 grad students are are thinking about these days. And um, you know, I think people could have some interesting uh, insights and questions about uh, you know hiring hiring people and you know just talent management. Um, the uh, digital natives versus the mechanical engineers and how, how those people can be uh, uh, trained and hired and, um, and, and uh, be successful. Fantastic. Well, we're excited to have, Fantastic. excited to have you and Frank kick off uh, device talks, Boston. So thank you for, uh, thank you for doing that. Well, Joe Army and Alton Shader, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you. So we've got a, a really interesting story, uh, one that uh, speaks to how Vaportherm uh, and Viant responded to the uh, the demands brought on by the pandemic. Uh, so we're going to get into that a little bit in this podcast, and we're going to address it even further at Device Talks Boston on May 10th, when you folks are going to uh, lead a panel discussion there, sort of talking about the, the whole process. So I'm looking forward to that. But this is a kind of a, a good intro to the discussion. But before we get into the solution and the problem and then the solution that Viant was able to provide, Joe, I've always enjoyed hearing you talk at panels and, and at conferences. And we've had a couple of conversations. I even got to visit you up there in, in Vapotherm once. And that was great. But uh, I'd love to hear the story of how you got into, into MedTech and ultimately how you landed at Vapotherm. But what was the first thing, the very first thing that uh, brought you to the MedTech industry? Well, that's a good question. So I was working as a uh, consultant in Philadelphia for a giant consulting firm, and my mother ended up getting lung cancer. And oh. uh, she had end-stage lung cancer, and that tumor had wrapped around her aorta. And they were telling my brother and I and my other brothers and sisters and whatnot that she had six months left to live. And my older brother being very, very smart and very, very stubborn, uh, he's got a, he's a PhD from MIT, his wife's a PhD from McGill, and they put their business on hold and they went and learned everything they could about lung cancer. And the next thing you know, they found a protocol that was being used in an NIH study. My mom went on it, son of a gun. She lived for 19 more years. Oh my gosh. And it was, it was a very, very informative time in my life. And it made me, you know, Kim and I had two little babies. We were living in uh, in a house in Philly and, you know, I was out working outside the house. She was raising the family. And, and I'm like, I got to do something different with my life because I've got to find a way to give something back. And, you know, we looked at each other and I said, well, maybe I ought to try to be a doctor. And she's like, yeah. And who's going to pay the rent? oh i started looking around and said well maybe i can do something different maybe i can't be a doctor but maybe i can get them tools that would allow them to do their job better so literally i'm signing my partner papers in this firm as a very young partner and i went in and told him that i was done a buddy of mine who i had done a turnaround for at smith klein literally called me up that week and said hey listen i'm starting this medical device company in new hampshire do you want you want to learn about it i'm like no I, i want to do it let's go Wow. And so literally that was the absolute most due diligence I did on the whole damn thing. Turned out that technology became one of the standards of care in uh, infection control in the burn units. It's a technology called Acticoat that Smith and Nephew bought and uh, you know, it turned out to be pretty damn successful technology. But that's how I got into business. 
That's amazing. What a transition. And then was it from there, then you got into to Procardia? I mean, that's, uh, that's obviously a med tech name that I, I remember from a, a long time ago. Well, what's his name? Uh, Kevin Spring had introduced me to Nancy Briefs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was doing some work for Nancy as a, you know, like a runner CFO kind of deal and just helping her get set up in the early days of Procardia. But quite honestly, you know, I am not a PMA person. I like building, you know, revenue and patients and customers and manufacturing. And so I had helped her uh, locate and recruit a great guy named Chris Joyce. And Chris came in as the CFO of Procardia. As it happened, Jackie Eastwood sat on the board of Procardia. Jackie had started with Jay Schmelter, started TissueLink, which became Salient. So that's how I ended up over there. Oh, okay. So by saying you're not a PMA guy, you don't want to, you're not in for the long clinical regulatory slog. You want to be out there creating businesses? Yeah, I say that. Well, now I actually have a product that, uh, you know, we cleared it in the United States and Europe, but it's now a, you know, a breakthrough technology product in front of FDA. And we're looking at the various clinical pathways for that, regulatory pathways for it. But I'm, I'm afraid that I'm the most I've ever done, Tom, is we did a de novo, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid I may get some PMA experience after all. Gosh darn it. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, <laughs> so talk a bit about the salient story, if you would. Uh, that's how I first came to know you. You joined that as, as CFO and then became CEO. Is that what happened? Yep. Yep. I was a fourth one and working for the company. It was Jackie and Mike and Judy Lang. And we were working out of Jackie's apartment in uh, Exeter and um, just had the idea and they had licensed the technology out of Medtronic. And I was like 1998, 1999. And by 2007, you know, Jackie had got the business to a point where she wanted to step back and, and uh, do some other things. And I ended up being able to step into that CEO role and, you know, we Grew the company pretty well and solved a pretty big clinical problem. And Medtronic bought that company in 2011. Mm-hmm. And they have done very, very well with that technology since. They've, they've really grown it quite well. So it's turned out to be a very important technology for controlling blood loss during surgery. Did you have an interest in staying at Medtronic or was it clear you were going to go find another company to lead or at least be involved with? Well, it's kind of funny. I had a bunch of Medtronic guys on my board. Wynn Wallen was the former CEO of Medtronic, and and uh, Gary Ellis was the current CFO. And Gary pretty much knew that there was no way in hell that I was going to be able to fit into a Medtronic-type situation. So I, <laughs> I lasted 30 days. My field organization put together an over-under bet on it. I can tell you that... <laughs> And I'm, I didn't know about it, or I would have messed with their pool a little bit, but I, I think I lasted 30 days in that. But it's a great company. Don't get me wrong. It's an absolutely fabulous company. It's very well run. It's got some great people in it and great technology. It's just, for me, I, I'm more interested in how do we go upset the status quo? How do we go really change the model of how care is delivered to a patient and, and doing it in a way that's really focused on improving that patient's quality of life? And while we do that, we're going to go take the cost down. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. And and so from, from there, you, you sort of discovered Vapotherm. Vapotherm was already in, in business. They were not in, in New Hampshire where they're now based and where you are. How did you learn about Vapotherm and what was it about the opportunity that intrigued you? Well, one of my mentors and uh, board members at Salient was also on the board at Vapotherm. And then I had some common venture capitalists between the two. And mm-hmm. They called me up and asked me to take a look at it for them on a kind of a consulting basis, which I did. You know, I shared with them, here was how to fix the business in my view. And 
they did something very smart. They said, you know, you we want you to go out and spend more time with the customers. And I said, well, okay, but you guys understand that this is not my first rodeo and that this is a my one-page report that I've given you is a good chance that after a month, all I'm going to do is come in here with a very large bill that you're going to owe me, and I'm going to change the date at the top of the report. And <laughs> as long as you guys are okay with that, I'm fine with it. So they were okay with it, and I remember – going out into the field and traveling with a bunch of these sales reps from our distributor at the time, a company called Trianum, really well-run company, good people. And uh, just asking all of these uh, different positions and neonatologists and whatnot, why they use the technology. There was a you know pretty significant quality problem. The company was coming off of a pretty major recall, you know, a la physio control where in you know 2007 the technology was completely off the market for 15 months and remember vapotherm invented the entire category of high flow nasal cannula this is all we do we've invented the worldwide category this is bill nyland and june cortez they did humanity a huge service by inventing this technology and uh, we've then refined it into a higher form of high velocity therapy which you can use to actually both clear the oxygen in a patient, but you can also ventilate a patient with this technology, which is absolutely remarkable that you can ventilate a patient with a nasal cannula. So I ended up becoming very intrigued with the idea uh, because the only way that you could really ventilate a patient in respiratory distress prior to that is with a positive pressure device like a BiPAP or CPAP type device. Uh, and if and if that didn't work, then you would have to go to a mechanical ventilation platform. You know, over the years, we've done a lot to, you know, improve product quality, improve the product design, bring manufacturing in-house, reignite the product portfolio. And so we were able to launch one to two new products each year and then build a pretty robust body of clinical evidence, which, which that's where I got my de novo experience, where FDA created a whole new technology or product category for this technology, where our labeling is very similar to the BiPAP folks, you know, right now we're still the only technology in that category. So, you know, it's been a very interesting ride to see this company grow as much as it did prior to COVID, being able to, you know, take the company public. We have an idea about how to really build this out. That when COVID-19 came along, it was like just put our business ahead three or four years in a time machine. It was quite remarkable to see the effect that we had on these patients. I believe it. But just, just to go back, uh, what, I have a feeling there's a good story that or, or a important story there. What happened on that month you were on the road out there? What did you see that convinced you to, to do more than submit a big bill? <laughs> so I, I end up in a NICU, I'll never forget it, in, in Newark, New Jersey, and there's a guy named Dr. Sung is the neonatologist and Bob Taro is a respiratory therapist. And, and I'm standing there and I'm asking him, you know, this is more expensive. There's some quality issues. There's no clinical data. Why the hell do you use it? And he looked at me and he said, because when it works, there's absolutely nothing like it on earth. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable what this technology would do. And he starts telling me stories and then the nurses come over and they start telling me stories. You know, there's young women in there. This is, uh, you know, back then there was a NICU that had, you know, some tougher socioeconomic uh, patients, right? There's a lot of people who really got the fuzzy end of the lollipop. And you're watching them hold their babies for the first time and be able to touch those kids 
you, you can't do that if that baby's on a on a CPAP, right? You just you can't do it. And it became a very emotionally charged moment for me. And I stepped out of the hallway before I made an emotional moron of myself in front of everybody. <laughs> I went and called my wife and told her I'm going back to work. And I just this is one that really deserves to be out there. And where I'm awful happy I did because I think what Bill and June invented is is really quite remarkable. It's amazing. I mean, do you do you kind of touch upon the 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 emotional button that you that was created with with your mom and her story every time you sort of see technology that can change someone's life, or did you see that was that experience more as as a dad of of, of kids where you know you can kind of connect with those parents, or maybe it's both. Well, it was our kid. Our first kid was born in Hospital University of Pennsylvania in West Philly. Son of a gun, if he didn't have a problem, and he ends up in the NICU there. It was the first NICU I ever been in, right? Mm -hmm. And that was back during the crack crisis in West Philadelphia. And you know, I'm walking in there looking for my kid, and I'm scared to death. So being in those NICUs brought back a lot of that memory of seeing Matt. But you know, my mom also, you know, as she as she continued on, her cancer reoccurred. She also had COPD by that point. So she ended up passing after I took over at Vapotherm. One of the things I was thinking about was, you know, this cancer stuff always comes back and it's always going to be a problem. You got to deal with it. And it, it would be great if I could figure out a way to help her with that. And, you know, we ended up putting her on a Vapotherm in her living room in the last days of her life. Well, I'll never forget that. You, you put morphine under your mom's tongue. It's something you will never, ever forget. And the beauty of our of our technology is when we bring it into the home, it resolves that dyspnea in those patients. And wow. well, I've been thinking about that every single day since I've seen that, you know? Unbelievable. And when I get into COVID next, because it's an important part of the story, but just can you give us a quick sort of understanding of, of how Vipotherm's technology does what it, what it does? Like, how does it get oxygen? How, how can it do what it does? Because it sounds remarkable. It truly is remarkable. And, and I, it was one of those things that's like, I'm, I'm fascinated with how technology is originally stumbled upon or developed or invented. And there's always a role of serendipity in this. And serendipity played a big part in the way that our technology evolved. It's actually the culmination of three really, really complicated variables. The amount of gas that you could put into the patient and then how you can put it in there without burning the nasal pharyngeal cavity, you've got to humidify it optimally. And then if you humidify, if you don't heat it, you have the same problem. You're putting in cold gas, you're going to drop the patient's body temperature. So literally stumbling upon that sort of Goldilocks combination of right velocity or right flow rates, plus right humidification levels, plus right temperature, being able to bring all those things together. I want you to think about in your lungs, you have, if you, if you take a breath in, the first gas that hits your lungs is the gas that was expired, that was all dead gas up in your nasal pharyngeal cavity. You didn't get it exhaled. It's full of CO2. It's not very much oxygen. So when you breathe back in, that's actually the first gas that hits your lungs. All our technology does is it replaces all of that gas between your breaths so that when you breathe in, the first thing that hits your lungs is perfectly oxygenated gas that's humidified to the optimal level at the right temperature. Now, what we do is, so you think about all that CO2 that we're blowing off the body and replacing it with that, that's how we're ventilating those patients. And the trick is doing it really, really fast because on really sick patients, 
they're going to be breathing 30, 35, 40 times a minute. Mm -hmm. So that means you got about a second time. You got a half a second to a second to actually clear that dead space and load it up with gas. So that's why the velocity is so important and why our technology is very effective at this. It's amazing. Okay, good. Well, that's that's a great intro. Before we get into COVID, Alton, I just wanted to uh, to, to bring you in for a second. You've been in the medical device energy for, for a long time. What, what was your first job here and how did it lead to your uh, role as CEO at, at Viant? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Tom uh, and Joe. Thanks for the information and the stories there. It's, uh, it's tough to follow. Um, <laughs> I jumped into the med device industry a little over 20 years ago and my first job was with Baxter. Uh, and I started with their biologics division and was with them for uh, about 10 years all over the world. Started in Southern California and was in Europe for about six years and then headed off to the headquarters in Deerfield outside of Chicago and then uh, joined Hillrom after that. Interestingly enough, Baxter obviously acquired Hillrom. So those are now the, now just one company mm-hmm. uh, and was with Hillrom for uh, about 10 years as well. So spent about 20 years in med device in public companies before I jumped out and uh, have been with Viant now since July of 2019. So joined uh, about nine months before the pandemic really started hitting us. Wow. Interesting timing. Well, it brings us into into the pandemic. So let's go back to March 2020, where things first began or fell apart, however you want, want to look at it. Was that clear at the time when people were really starting to get sick in the world that this was going to be a challenging period for Vapotherm? Well, Tom, we didn't know because we didn't know if our technology would actually make the problem worse. Okay. Right? But I was very lucky that my chief commercial officer, Greg Ramad grew up through the SARS epidemic and it knew an awful lot about, well, this is what may in fact happen. Hmm. And he's also based in Paris. And so, you know, we didn't start in March. He and I started in like the second week of January. As soon as we saw this show up, we started talking a couple, three times a day. We started bumping all the throttles forward on the supply chains then. So by the time the poop hit the fan here in the United States in the middle of March, we were in pretty good shape because we Mm -hmm. had seen a lot of things developing in Asia and in Western Europe. So we we responded pretty well. We got pretty lucky. We shut down actually all of our company initiatives and literally put every single person we had into supporting that supply chain in that clean room. And then I sent a third of our people home that day and you know, we've never actually brought them back. We've turned their desk space into production space. So it was not clear that we were going to help. We were concerned that the nature of our technology would actually spread the virus. Mm-hmm. And we knew that from looking at what was going on in Northern Italy at the time, that the issue in Northern Italy was not actually a lack of ventilators. It was a lack of people because all the healthcare workers got COVID-19. And if we ended up dropping our gear in hospitals and they started using it and spreading COVID-19, we were going to feel like total jerks and just not help the problem. So we, we did some really excellent work very quickly in collaboration with a number of emergency medicine physicians and, and Liberty University. And that information was published in chest in the form of a letter, literally the third or fourth week of March, where we were able to conclude that we were not going to increase the risk to the healthcare providers. We simply were going to put a surgical mask over the patient's face and we wouldn't spread it. And Tom, when that happened, all hell broke loose. Then we were shipping like tractor trailer loads of this stuff down to New York City, which at the time was getting hit the hardest. So it was quite an experience. We we managed to work through, you know, three or four surges and 
And that was in the spring of 2021. That's when I made what I would think is probably one of the biggest mistakes of my professional career. And it was a total failure of imagination on my part where I just assumed that when the vaccines were cleared and everybody got them, that this was going to recede. And so literally after that spring of 2021 surge, we took our foot off the pedal pretty dramatically. And so whenever the next wave came, that Delta wave showed up in July, August, we're looking at each other going, oh my God, are we in, are we in trouble? And at that point, you know, we were trying to scale up production again, and we had gotten pretty good at hiring 150 to 200 people and doing it in a matter of two to three weeks. I mean, we've done it now four or five times. We tried it again this time, and there were no takers. People just were not, they were burnt, you know? Are you producing new systems for new places that didn't have them before? Are you focusing on resupplying everything you've sold? Because with each surge, I imagine you're selling product to those hospitals that will have it the next time there is a surge. Are you providing more units to, to more hospitals or are you supplying units you've already provided? It's an excellent question. I'm going to answer it this way by telling you that when this all started, we came up with three rules of thumb or principles that we were going to run by. And first was keep our people safe. The second was meet every customer need. So any current customer, we were going to do whatever had to be done to make sure that current customers got whatever they needed to fight this pandemic. And we were going to prioritize them. And then the third objective was get this technology into every one of the gold accounts of the top 1,000 hospitals in the United States, because that's where the patients were going to end up in our estimation. So that was number three. So to answer your question, we did both. We prioritized always current customers. Then we prioritized whatever hospitals were getting hit with an actual surge. We were not shipping into hospitals that were not dealing with a surge. When we shared this with them, we put an air traffic controller in place and we said, look, you know, you're going to have to trust us, but everybody's going to get product and we're not going to run into one of these toilet paper problems where you walk in there and it's all gone, but you know, some guy's got a warehouse full of it. If we just be smart about this and only send material to where that's needed now, everybody will be fine. And actually that worked out remarkably well. And, and our customers were very appreciative of that once they believed that's what we were actually doing. Mm -hmm. It took a little bit of time for them to understand that when we told them we were going to do it, that's what we were going to do. So we're in spring of 2021, the surge is happening despite our, your and my hope that the vaccines would tamp it down. What was next when you weren't able to, to, to find people? You mentioned before I pushed record that you were in parking lots, handing out flyers and $3,000 signing bonuses, and you were still having trouble. Well, we actually did two things. One, the guy who runs the digital business had built a very strong relationship with the Creek Indian Nation in Oklahoma. And he went out there, and as luck would have it, the woman in charge of their employment agency, her husband had died about three months ago, three months before that from COVID-19. And he told her, listen, we need as many people as we can get from the reservation to move to New Hampshire and go live in a hotel and go build product for these patients. Wow. Because just prior to that, I was telling you the story. I was standing, we were trying to hire these 150, 200 people and I'm having no luck. We're three weeks in and we got like 12 people hired. So it's literally a Monday night and I'm standing in the Walmart parking lot, Portsmouth, New Hampshire with a stack of uh, flyers in my hand. 
offered $3,000 signing bonuses and 25 bucks an hour, shaking everybody's hand coming out of Walmart, trying to hire them. And I, I struck out. So that's when we knew we were going to be in trouble. And that's when we pulled the play where, you know, my wife rented a couple of hotels here on the seacoast. We, we flew those guys in. We brought in 70 or 80 folks from the Creek Nation. Could never, ever think of enough. But that wasn't going to be enough. And that's when we realized, you know, we need some help. And fortunately, we've been having conversations with Alton and, and Andy Redding is another guy on his team that we know. We had actually been looking at the idea of bringing on some additional manufacturing capacity. Now, I have to tell you, by way of background, I am not a particular fan of contract manufacturers. <laughs> I've never had a very good experience with them. And, uh, you know, I just it's just not something that I like. It's like I don't like distributors very much, and I like direct salespeople, and I like my own plants. But, no offense taken. No, no offense taken. <laughs> Uh, well, I tell him that only because you just need to know my going in frame of mind around this is probably not the most forward leaning you've ever seen, right? <laughs> and uh, we got lucky where our teams had really kind of clicked. Fortunately, I had nothing to do with it, right? So my whole view of the world wasn't, wasn't doing anything. John Coolidge is really the guy who making all this happen on our side. And uh, we had already had a team go down to Mexico and do a quality review and Coolidge and Sean and Andy and, and whatnot were working through, you know, the, the financial terms, they get it all set. And we literally said over a weekend, Coolidge and I retire each other going, we got to do this. And so literally we call up and we tell them we got to go. We don't even have a contract in place with these guys. Right. And we go to work and literally two weeks after telling them that they had already been in our plant. They took our production lines down, got them on a, a rigger, got them moved to Mexico, got them back up, ran full validations, and we were shipping product that was saleable. Did the whole damn thing in like two weeks. Never seen anything like it. Never wow. seen anything like it. So, is this something that you do <laughs> typically? Walk me through sort of your side of things when you were initially working with Vapotherm and yeah. then when they rang the bell, what happened next? Well, absolutely. Well, well first, I, I'll tell you. Joe and I go back a few years as when I was at Hillrom, uh, he and I and Andy Redding, as you mentioned, our chief commercial officer here now at Viant, had a number of conversations with him back in 2018. So when I learned that the Viant team was talking to the Vapotherm team about a potential outsourcing opportunity, I already knew about Vapotherm. I was already aware of the impact that Vapotherm had on patients and the clinical outcomes. And I'll just tell you that I told our team, I said, hey, we got to get this. We got to work with these guys because there's nothing we love more at Viant than being a part of the solution to deliver a life-saving therapy to care teams and to patients. And that is exactly what Joe and the Vapotherm team were looking to entrust us with. So when we finally got that, yes, let's make it happen, even though we didn't have the contract, we said, hey, let's, let's go all in on this. So like Joe said, we had a team of people fly out to New Hampshire the next day. They disassembled their line. They airshipped it to TJ, reassembled it, like you said, validated it. And we had final performance qualification or PQ in just 14 days. So is that a typical program? <laughs> no, that is not a typical program. That said, there was a there was a trust there and it was something that we understood that they absolutely needed i mean they they needed this and they built a great case about how if we couldn't get up to speed immediately 
there was a good chance that people were going to die. And that is a, a great motivator. And our motivation within our company is to do whatever we can to completely be focused on delivering for the customer. And this, this fit in exactly within our culture. And it's just been, it's been a really good partnership ever since, you know, those first couple of weeks that were so crazy. I'm sure it's evident to everyone listening to the podcast in this interview, except for maybe me, but the move to Tijuana, were you essentially moving a line that was inactive because of a lack of people to an area where there were plenty of people who could mend the line? Absolutely. So what we were doing is we were moving that line out there and we were able to put a lot more people on it and get a lot more people on it immediately. So yeah. we had, you know, did all the work that we needed to do to get the teams trained up. And again, it's, it's a partnership, right? This isn't all about Viant stepping up here. The Vapotherm team stepped up just as much or more to get us to a point where we could validate the line and we could get people trained up. So it was uh, it was really a lot of good work together with both teams. Give me a sense of the size of shipments we're talking about. I'm guessing this all didn't fit into one UPS truck. You know that's funny. It's it, no, that wouldn't be. Well, first of all, it wouldn't be a truck because because it was on an airplane. So that's right. to, get it, to get it from uh, to New Hampshire to Tijuana and had everything up and running in 14 days. I, I'll, I'll have to check the uh, the records on that, Tom. They they don't let me get near decisions like that. <laughs> but it was a lot of stuff. We're talking about a big shipment of equipment. Absolutely, and any, yeah. anyone who's moved a line before, they understand. And there's a reason that people don't like doing this, right? I mean, it's complicated. It generally takes a lot of time. But again, the collaboration between the two teams and a lot of prep work by the working teams, even before we got an agreement was, was critical here to delivering. Interesting. So Joe, the line is packed up. It's moved to Tijuana. What was next from there? Are you, how soon are they turning out product and how was it sort of managing a line that was not under your own roof? You, you mentioned that you're, you didn't use the term control freak, but you like to be in control. <laughs> you like to know it's yours. How was the relationship knowing that the line was was a continent away in, in Tijuana? Well, it actually is not us running it. Yep. For us to be comfortable, it was literally about Sean and Alton and Andy. And knowing that when they gave us their word and they know what we do. And by the way, we actually have a huge business in Mexico too, right? So the people who were building our product in Mexico, we were making it clear to them that they were building for their country people as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it wasn't us running that factory. It was those guys. And it was being comfortable to trust them and have them look you in the eye and go, we will die before we will let you down. We will find a way to win. And, you know, there's not a lot of people like that on planet Earth who, when they say that, you're really going to believe them. Well, I believe these guys, they've delivered. But, you know, that wasn't enough. Just moving one production line. If you think about it, we had other production lines, but more importantly, we had component lines in Exeter where those were the only places on earth where you could make those components. And, you know, we were having the same problem staffing those too. So as soon as we moved that first disposable line down right behind it, we moved the delivery tube line and got that set up and running. We wanted to duplicate capabilities everywhere. Then we moved another disposable line. Then we moved another uh, delivery tube line. Now that we're, we're set up, we're looking at the long-term and we're looking ahead you know, Viant is going to build every single disposable that we're going to make for that precision flow platform. And we're going to focus our team up here on really building the capital equipment and on building the disposables for the next generation platforms for our latest and greatest. Mm -hmm. Because that install base right now is 35,000 of our systems around the world. And 
you know, on a normalized basis, those things will generate, you know, a couple of disposables every month. You know, what, as historically, that's where we've been. So you start to do the math on that. Our goal is over the long term to keep our Viant partners pretty busy and then look for other places where we can collaborate together. What was this the plan when you initially had reached out to Viant? Were you going to get to this place eventually, but maybe it would have taken a couple of years as opposed to a couple of weeks? Yeah, five years, right? Five years. You're talking about like a five-year type <laughs> thing as opposed to two weeks. And then he didn't even get to the good part yet because we didn't have – we had one set of production tools. And we were looking at, at Sean and at, at Alton and Andy and going, guys, this is a problem. We now need you to activate your network, and we need a set of production tools. And, oh, by the way, we need some soft tools, and we need them in a time frame that's absolutely undoable. And we know that, but you got to find a way to do it. And that was all being done in Singapore and, and uh, China. And my goodness gracious, the complexity around that was just unbelievable. And yet, they got it done. That's amazing. So, Alton, what has this experience been like for, for Vian and, and sort of what lessons have you taken out of it? Is it has it impacted how you're working with, with other clients going forward? Yeah, we, we've definitely learned from it. I mean, we always try to be as, again, focused on the customers possible. And when a customer tells us, hey, this is a need and there are patients on the other end of this product who absolutely need this and it's essential for their life, then then we're going to do everything we can to meet those needs. What this has been great for, though, is Joe said it, you know, the first few meetings we had when the Vapotherm outlined timelines we had a lot of doubt. We had doubt that we could deliver. And obviously it's a, it's a good partnership. So we push back and then they push back and then we push back just how that thing goes. But you've got the need. Innovation really pops up. And our teams came up with some really good ideas, called on favors, did everything we could to figure out who the right suppliers were for us to work with, to ensure that we could get the tooling, ensure that we were, again, working with some incredibly smart and good people at Vapotherm too, to speed everything up as well. You know, it's given us and our Tijuana team the confidence that we really can sometimes do the impossible here. And you know, I've just been really proud of our team and really proud of the, the partnership and how strong it's become in a very short amount of time. Great. And Joe, final question to you. How has this affected Vapotherm? You mentioned earlier on that you're now uh, uh, got some some new innovative technologies you work on, new products. Um, is this freed Vapotherm up to, to grow in a different direction? I think it's freed us up to do things that only we can do, mm -hmm. right? I think we were pretty damn good at making disposables. I mean, like really good. But I think Alton and his team are going to be better. This is all they do for a living, right? Coolidge ran a really good or runs a really good clean room. But think about it. When you're a company of our size, you really got to put every dollar of capital you have on those things that only you can do. So, for example, we still make our medical grade humidification technology here in Exeter. And we always will because it's highly proprietary. We will be focusing our production teams on the, we call it the HVT 2.0 system. And then, you know, we're working on a, a home platform, as we've described on our earnings calls. Those technologies are going to be built here. But, you know, if you think about it, once they get to some volume, we need to go give it to people who have the experience and the knowledge of the systems to really handle very high volume disposables. And I would imagine at some point we might even look at that with capital, but we have a very talented workforce in Exeter. We're very lucky to have them. And we want to make sure that we're continuing to challenge them with building really, really cutting edge technology. 
the same time, though, making sure that they're doing the things that only they know how to do and taking Alton's team and putting them to work at the things that they're the very best at. And I think that works pretty good. Fantastic. Well, we're going to have the, uh, I think we've mentioned everyone who's going to be on the panel at Device Talks Boston. It's happening on May 10th at 3 p.m. John Coolidge, Joe Army, Andy Redding, Sean Crowley, and Alton Shader. You'll all be there to sort of expand upon this story a bit more and to share some more lessons and I'm sure take questions from the audience. So uh, we'll see you all on May 10th at Device Talks Boston. And uh, Joe and Alton, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Once again, thanks again to Viant for sponsoring this episode of the Device Talks weekly podcast. If you want to find out more about how Viant helped Vapotherm, you need to be at their discussion. It's happening at 3 p.m. on May 10th. The title is How to Rapidly Scale and Unlock Growth with Strategic Manufacturing Partnerships. It's featuring John Coolidge, Vice President of Operations at Vapotherm, Joe Army, Andy Redding, the Chief Commercial Officer at Viant, Sean Crowley, the Chief Operating Officer at Viant, and Alton Shader. So go to devicetalks.com for more information about their session. And if you want more information about Viant, go to viantmedical.com. That's V-I-A-N-T medical.com. All right, Chris Newmarker, what's number two on the Newmarker's Newsmarkers list? Number two on the list, uh, we've got um, we've got G Healthcare and uh, Electa. They're collaborating to expand, uh, you know, precision uh, radiation therapy uh, access. And you know, to, to me, this really seems like like a response to uh, you know Seaman Health and Ears, uh, acquiring uh, you know Varian Medical Systems last year. It was a sixteen point four billion dollar deal, and you know just create this like. You know, like the, the merger just created this like really huge compre- comprehensive cancer care portfolio. And, you know, I, I think what we're seeing here is, uh, you know, GE Healthcare, they need to make sure their uh, you know, portfolio is more, uh, you know, comprehensive. And so they're, uh, you know, they've got this uh, partnership going now with, uh, you know, Electa, this, uh, you know, you know, big, uh, big, uh, you know, Swedish uh you know, um, you know, oncology uh, tech uh, companies. So, so yeah, just more competition in the space, I think. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, my, my take on it, there's, you know, there's multiple ways to do things. And I think Peter Arduini came in there from, from Integra. And, you know, if you recognize, probably started before he came in, but the notion of, you know, we need to have this partnership, we need to have something. And sometimes you buy the cow and sometimes you don't need to. And I think depending on how they execute it, it could be as effective as as having bought Varian. Would you see? I mean, I think strategically, you could you could, you could argue both sides of it. But I, I think uh, the technology is good, and the integration is good, and and uh, you know, the, the the need is out there. They they could be quite successful without taking out all the all, all the rest of of the liability or whatever the risk of 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 going for the full acquisition. So um, Peter's a sharp guy, so I'm, I'm sure that um, uh, they'll they'll do well with it. I thought it was interesting. The agreement is non-exclusive, so you know, like, so maybe that could be actually like an advantage, uh, you know, versus being like, well, you know, we don't want to do business with you because you're you're part of G Healthcare now. Like, it's like, well, no, you know, we're doing our thing. They're just they're just good friends, you know. <laughs> it depends on your corporate. It depends on your corporate value. The corporate intent is the intent to have a better, more competitive suite of products in the hospital. Or is it, well, I need to get more revenue onto my bottom line. And to get the revenue, I need to actually buy all of Varian. And it just kind of, it's a very much a financial thing. I'm like, okay, now I'm I'm all in. And then there's all these good and bads about, about how you change yeah. your balance sheet and, and, and your income statement when you acquire. In terms of how you actually operate in the field, 
it it may not yeah. matter. I mean, it's kind of like getting back to the Ethicon story. I mean, we, both of us, and I'm sure, you know, U.S. Surgical Committee looked at buying Olympus and and um, and and Storts as partners. But yeah, at the end of the day, we just needed to be partners such that the customer experience yeah. was good. And as long as you stay, you know, as good as the cust- as it, what the customer needs, the rest of it's just a financial thing. So I'll be curious to see what happens. Yeah, so like kind of like you know Siemens Health and yours want the M and A route with Varian, while you know G Healthcare want the partnership route with Electa, and uh, like we'll we'll see yeah, how it plays how out. should we look at G Healthcare now? I mean, G's obviously gone through a lot of changes, spinouts and such. They're going to be going standalone. Um, do you do we see this as? I mean, I don't want it's ridiculous. I think to say emerging or anything like that, but they're certainly more active. Uh, I think standalone, they're probably be more focused. Do we do we see them as a as a rising power or a continuous power? How do how do you view GE Healthcare? Yeah, no, I I, I see them as a continuing power because I, yeah. I think what 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 you'll see is they will now have from top to bottom, they will have more of a gut sense of everything that's going on in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, where if they're part of a larger conglomerate, it's I mean that manager knew it. But by the way, he or she may have been at you know, trains the, 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 you know, a couple of years before. So yeah. it's kind of hard to, to be that expert. So I, I think they'll have that, that gut sense of, of, of the business. And then also some of what happened with, with, uh, with seems health and air, sometimes they'll know, okay, you know what, we need to do something big because, you know, uh, you know, we, we don't have their, everything that doesn't yeah. fit or, or whatever. So they'll have a, a bit of a, of a, of a more of a core sense from top to bottom of, of what's going on which I think comes back to help them on the talent side in terms of being able to have people work there who, um, you know, will, uh, uh, you know, feel like their, 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 their expertise is going to be valued because it's, it's really core to the, to the overall business. So I could definitely see them starting to acquire after Arduino's had a little while to kind of, you know, figure things out, but I, I think they'll, they'll, they'll probably strengthen in the space. Great stuff. All right, Chris Newmarker, bring it home. What's what's number one on the Newmarker's Newsmakers list? Number one on the list, we've got uh, FDA uh, clearing a uh, AFib uh, al- algorithm for Fitbit. Um, you know, which is now part of Google. They bought it uh, last year for you know two point one billion dollars. But uh, but yeah, Fitbit's going to have uh, AFib identification, and uh, they're uh, they're talking about this. Uh, being uh, available to U.S. customers in coming months on a range of uh, heart-enabled devices, and it'll be interesting to see the one I've got here on my wrist gets it too. So, um, yeah, that's it's wow, like a like Fitbit, uh, kind of like this consumer health fitness company. But uh, yeah, maybe they might you know be able to you know track down some undiagnosed AFib. Do we have a sense of uh, of how that compares to the Apple Watch's AFib detector? I wonder. My, my suspicion in this space is they're all going to get get better. So it doesn't really matter where it exactly stands today, other than your mm-hmm. decision to go buy or not. Um, it really comes down to like I think of like how well will will Google you know execute on on taking this taking this forward and doing things you know better and differently than 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 Apple because I think you know they work, but this technology is as a space is such that every year there's going to be something you could do better and better. Um, and then part of it has become more the back end. Where do you actually um, you know, feed it to and who's kind of, we go back to this AI discussion of like, how is it actually going to be, you know, signaling to whom about what and what are you going to do about it? Um, so I'd, I'd be curious to see how, how the, um, you know, just how, how Google does with this. Cause they've, they've, um, they've tried healthcare in the past and didn't work. I mean, Verily's doing fine, but that's kind of separate on the consumer side. Mm-hmm. Um, they could do great. I mean, I think yeah. Fitbit and for them to get into it, I, I think it is probably the best, Low, best acquisition in the space rather than just starting their own, you know, Google phone or something. 
Um, if, if, or they have an established yeah, consumer home. Yeah, so if they really yeah. if they go after it and and they can figure out how to tie it into the back end and, and do it some other kind of you know you know interesting ways, um, it could be really good. I, I do think their back ends will always be will be great. Um, but they got to figure out how to deal with the consumer and, and, and kind of get people off your Apple watches. I think your question is right. Tom is, you know, to, it was kind of like, you know, whatever, um, you know, iOS versus, uh, um, Android, right. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it just needs to be good enough. And then you got to figure out, okay, as, as it gets you know deeper and broader and broader, you know, how, how's Fitbit going to, if Fitbit going to, going to play out, I wouldn't be surprised if they use Fitbit for a, a sub brand and maybe another one. Yeah. Um, a little bit different, but I think it's good for good for the world because the more people who are trying to help us with our health, um, <laughs> we'll spend some of these yeah, uh, billions of dollars getting you know spun off from other uh, from from other uh, you know big tech stuff. Let them let them sink it into helping us feel better about it. I, I still remember I was amazed a few years back there was a, a uh, big NFL playoff game here, like that was the Minneapolis miracle where, you know, the, the Viking player like caught it, the, the ball at the last minute ran it in and, you know, and, and, uh, there were Apple watches across, uh, across, uh, the, the twin cities. They were telling people they were having heart events so, <laughs> when, when that there happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, when you mentioned that heart attack, I, I, yeah, I thought you were going to go like, there's this, um, company Woo, which actually you may have, it, they have the personal thing and they were actually started, and it was very much done just with professional athletes and actually with the trainers of professional athletes. And so now they went at it from a very different perspective. So I'd be kind of curious where, where those, where those two meet because they have a, an excellent um, uh, personal fitness device on your wrist, but it's kind of starting at the highest end, kind of even above an Apple watch. And now is is going more broadly and it's got a service with it, like, you know, Peloton or whatever, but um it'll be interesting to see how, how those markets kind of come together in terms of that whoop has things that, you know, that it's going to tell you around your sleep and other things that right now, Apple and, 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 and Fitbit are far from getting. So they'd be curious to see how yeah. it gets there. And again, that was developed with these professional athletes and the trainers. Very cool. Well, we're headed in the right direction for sure. So excellent. All right. Well, Chris Newmarker, now is the time we tell people where to find us on social media. Where are you at? Where are you out there? I am on LinkedIn, uh, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker. I am on Twitter uh, at Newmarker. Uh, always happy to, to talk to people. And, and I aired. I, I normally we, we let our guests go first. Peter, uh, as I mentioned at the top, I think you and I connected on Clubhouse. Uh, where are you out there? Are you doing social media stuff? Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm doing stuff on on, on LinkedIn and on, um, uh, on on Twitter. Um, I tr- I don't know if <laughs> Clubhouse really hasn't quite taken off the way that no, I would have thought. So I'm like, I tried it. And I'm I not- don't have enough time for that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I tried. I tried to drag no, Chris on the clubhouse, and uh, no. wisely resisted. And then after a month or so, I was like, "Yeah, he's right." I, I'd is, like yeah. to at least no try to read books, please. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you on Twitter, Peter? I'm. Yeah, I think I'm P. Stevens at Twitter. So. All right. Excellent. Well, I am uh, at MedTech Tom on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. And that's it. Folks could do us a favor by uh, subscribing to... Oh, actually, sorry, Chris. What do we want folks to do? Let me push the button. Ready? Go! Like, follow, subscribe. Just Venmo me as well if you want. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. What's your Venmo? If anyone wants to send Peter money, he's he's fine. He'll he'll accept that. We'll we'll offer commentary for Venmo, yes. Um, But... uh, Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, yeah, like, follow, subscribe, share this podcast, uh, subscribe to this podcast, 
channel, you'll get this podcast, Intuitive Talks and Striker Talks. Subscribe also to the Medtronic Talks podcast that we talked about earlier. It has its own channel. That way you will be you'll be neck deep in uh, in medtech insights and uh, information. So uh, it'll help you do your job better and uh, and listen to some really cool, interesting people. So ain't nothing wrong with that. And uh, other than that, yeah, please do share this podcast on those social media channels. Share this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast uh, on your social media channels so folks can find it. And uh, of course, make sure you do attend the upcoming Device Talks Boston conference. It's happening on May 10th and 11th. As we mentioned, Peter will be kicking it off with a great interview with Frank Doyle of Harvard, a medtech pioneer who's going to offer a lot of great thoughts as to where we've been and where we're going, most important. And uh, it really is going to be a, a great way to kick it off. And uh, I'm grateful for uh, for Peter and yeah. Frank for, for doing that. And uh, you can you can register by uh, by going to devicetalks.com. Make sure you use the code DTW25 to save 25%. And while you're there, considering registering for Device Talks Minnesota, which happens on June 6th and 7th. And uh, the snow will be gone by June 6th and 7th, yes, Chris. Yes, can you June promise? is, I think, one of the best months we have okay, in the state. Right. It is yeah, a great June month aw- in Minnesota. Seriously, it's an awesome yeah, month. Right. Like, does, not... I, yeah, it's just great. I love it. Sunny, good temperature. And it's a couple of weeks before the black flies come out, right? The black flies can be an issue. Not so much in Minneapolis. <laughs> yeah, up in but, north, uh, you get outside. the black flies. Though I, I did hear that the black flies are what <laughs> pollinate the wild blueberry bushes up north. So, you know, they, they play a role. They're good. You just... It's fine. It's like there's a positive to everything. Like it's I'm, like, oh, these. I'm glad you told me that. It must be the same up in Maine too, because they have both yeah. blueberries and black flies. And I'm, I'm a yes. big fan of one and not the other. So uh, it's sad that something so annoying has to allow something so wonderful to happen. <laughs> <laughs> We're learning so much. Peter, thank you for joining right. us on the podcast. I'd love to have you back. All right. All right. But have a good weekend. Try not to eat too much candy. <laughs>